0: who i trust more than anyone at birch gold group text just news to 98 98 98 right now hello america and welcome to a friday edition of john solomon reports the podcast from just the news where today we're going to have a one-on-one exclusive interview with dr ben carson yes the hud secretary the former, the great neurosurgeon The former presidential candidate, he's joining us to talk about his new foundation, the American Cornerstone Institute, what he's doing to try to create a more civil, more honest conversation in America uh, to combat uh, censorship and cancel culture and meanness, uh, toxicity, uh, and to keep the policies and the ideas of the Trump doctrine alive uh, during a Biden presidency. So Dr. Carson is going to join us. Very big moment, we're looking forward to the interview. Uh, Gonna learn a lot about this new institute that he's created, what his next chapter in his life is going to be after his run at uh, HUD and uh, serving his government. Now, before we get to that, and before we go to our normal commercial break, I wanna bring to light um, some work I've been doing on the FISA applications involving uh, Carter Page. We've seen these released, and each time they get released, Uh, a little bit more information comes out and we get a little bit more and uh, we're able to report a little more. But last night I was able to see, I don't have a copy of it, but I was able to see uh, um, the most unredacted version of the final FISA, the fourth FISA, the third time it was renewed in June of 2017. This last FISA uh, continued the... um, Uh, monitoring, the surveillance, the spying of Carter Page and the Trump campaign for a full year. It was already nine months into the effort when this was filed. And when you go through it and you read it, the new version, which was only made available, declassified because of the work of President Trump. President Trump declassified this in one of his final days. There was a page I've always been fascinated about in in the uh, FISA warrant, and it was page 57 of the final FISA warrant, not much different from earlier versions. But it made an argument, and it had a big black spot, you know, a redaction right in the middle of it, and I couldn't understand what the FBI was doing because it made a point that Carter Page, it told the court that one of the reasons uh, it was concerned was that Carter Page was going on media defending his innocence, You know, something he probably should be allowed to do under the First Amendment, right? <clears throat> but for some reason, there was a nefarious suggestion about it, but you couldn't tell what the nefarious suggestion was. And then it also said he might be priming himself to get a book deal. Again, protected by the First Amendment. And I couldn't understand what it was that the FBI was trying to use this passage to suggest that this was justification for uh, continuing to spy on him, because neither one of those things are illegal. Giving interviews to the media, writing a book, they're perfectly legal. So Thanks to President Trump's declassification, we got, yes, we got the actual redacted middle section out. I'm going to read the whole paragraph now, because what we learned from it is that the FBI, without a scintilla of evidence, without an ounce of proof, no document, no source, no intercept, no uh, uh, cooperating witness, they made the claim that Carter Page was doing interviews in the media. Uh, to um, uh, insist on his innocence and might be considering write a book because Russian intelligence must be ordering him to do this. Now, this is a pretty extraordinary statement. Uh, and it had been redacted all this time to protect the FBI from the embarrassment of this claim because it didn't offer any proof. It just said the FBI believes. And as you know from all the education we've had on the FISA, you're not allowed to put beliefs in a FISA warrant. You're supposed to put verified facts. In fact, it's stamped verified. And at the moment, the FBI utters this sentence. They have already known on multiple occasions, going back to August of 2016, that Carter Page isn't working for Russian intelligence. He's working for U.S. intelligence. He is an asset, a listed operative of the CIA. And yet they have the audacity to hide that from the court and then make this statement. Let me just read you the fully unredacted paragraph, because I think it opens our eyes to just how far-fetched and inappropriate the FBI Justice Department's conduct was. And keep in mind, it was acting director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, and Rod Rosenstein, who signed this loss. Corker, if I can call it that, of a FISA warrant application. Let me just read the words to you. It's not that long, and when you get to it, you're going to start to realize how far-fetched this was. Here it is. The FBI also notes that Page continues to be active in meeting with media outlets to promote his theories of how U.S. foreign policy should be adjusted with regard to Russia and also to refute claims of his involvement with Russian government efforts to influence the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The FBI believes, that's the word, doesn't have proof, evidence, source testimony. The FBI believes that Page may have been instructed by Russian officials to aggressively deny, especially in the media, any Russian involvement with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The FBI believes, there is that magic word, doesn't have evidence, doesn't have proof, doesn't have a cooperating witness or a document or an intercept. The FBI believes this approach is important because from the Russian government's point of view, it continues to keep the controversy of the election in front of the American and world medium, which has the effect of undermining the integrity of the U.S. electoral process and weakening the effectiveness of the current U.S. administration. The FBI believes, there's that word again, Page may also be seeking media attention in order to maintain momentum for potential book contracts. Just take a breath for a second and think about what the FBI said. Under the color of law, without evidence, without valid, verified information, the FBI just accused Page of taking instruction from the Russian intelligence service to exercise his First Amendment right to give interviews, to defend his innocence, by the way, because he was innocent in the media, and to maybe write a book. When does the FBI get away? and What FISA judge allows this to be a submission of proof? And so I I was troubled by this. I I know enough about the FBI and FISA To be angry about it. But I decided, you know what? I've been covering this a long time. Why don't I turn to somebody who ran the FBI's intelligence division, who made these decisions all the time? And, in fact, what makes Kevin Brock, the person I'm about to mention, so important is he not only made these decisions, he wrote the modern-day rules to govern how confidential human sources target Americans, how FISA warrants get vetted. Uh, He was... Robert Mueller, when Robert Mueller was the FBI director, his chief of intelligence, he retired a little bit more than a decade ago. And I said, I I called up Kevin. I said, Kevin, this is actually now what the unredacted um, uh, section of this FISA that I've always been intrigued by actually says. They're making an allegation without any proof that uh, the Russian intelligence might be instructing Carter Page to do this. They've been monitoring him for 12 or 9 months at this point. They clearly don't have any evidence of wrongdoing, and yet they make this allegation. And he reviewed it, and let me just read you what he said, because he said it in just a few short words about what is wrong with this application. And, uh, and uh, I just thought it was uh, concise enough. It just makes the point. This is the former chief of the FBI Intelligence Division, Kevin Brock, After hearing what the Carter Page unredacted FISA said, quote, Kevin Brock said, it is a desperate attempt, a desperate attempt, to keep an investigation which had no predication in the first place going with conjecture, speculation, and manufactured belief. Manufactured belief. That's an FBI expert, the man who wrote the modern-day rules for this, what he sees when you get to see the fully unredacted document. Now, what an important um, gift President Trump left behind by giving us this. But more importantly, the FBI kept redacting this, not because it was classified, not because it had a national secret in it, because it had a preposterous theory that would show the FBI was throwing allegations around without a verified, validated basis, which is what a FISA warrant is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be conjecture. It is supposed to be a verified uh, fact-only thing. And I want to go to one other point in this, because when you read through this later on, and you can go check the story out. It's on the front page of Justin News. I encourage you to do it. There's another component of this that I think is so important. The FBI mentioned in its final application an intercept. It had a hat of Carter Page meeting with source number two. That's the informant Stefan Halpern. This meeting occurred on October 17, 2016. It's added in the FISA and uh, we now know because you all saw the uh, transcript of this conversation because I released it a couple of days ago uh, thanks to President Trump's declassification. I was able to get my hands on him and we know that in that conversation Carter Page was asked all of the four major allegations against him in the Steele dossier, and he knocked them down, denied them flatly, um, called it a big lie. They tried to trip him up like, oh, you must know this guy. Give us his phone number. He's like, I told you, I don't know the guy. He knocked down, not knowing that he was talking to an FBI informant, he knocked down authoritatively that the four main allegations against him, that he met with two sanctioned um, Russian officials, that he changed the platform, that he might have been involved in arranging for WikiLeaks to leak Hillary Clinton's emails. He said he didn't do any of that. Now, let me read you how the FBI wrote this in the application, because they did not tell the court the truth. Here's what they actually um, wrote. On or about October 17, 2016, Page met with source number two, which the meeting consensually monitored and recorded. The FICE app, uh, according to the FBI's review of the recorded conversation, source number two made general inquiries about the media reporting regarding Page's contact with Russian officials. Although Page did not provide any specific details to refute, dispel, or clarify the media reporting, he made vague statements that minimized his activities. Didn't refute, made vague statements. All right, you tell me if this is a vague statement. This is directly from the FBI's transcript. When he's asked by Stefan Halper, did you meet with Igor Session and Igor Dyvechkin, two sanctioned Russian officials close to Vladimir Putin? That's what Steele claimed happened. We now know it did not happen. The FBI concluded those meetings did not happen. Here's what, in real time, what Carter Page told unwittingly an FBI informant. He thought it was an academic, right? Stefan Halper was coming to him as an academic friend. In fact, he was working for the FBI. This is what Carter Page said. The core lie, the core lie is that I met with these sanctioned officials, several of which I never even met in my entire life, but they said that I met them in July. That's not a vague statement. That is a direct, direct uh, denial that it happened. He called it a core lie. He said he'd never met him in his life. The FBI hid that from the court. All the while while making up a completely preposterous argument. I only call it preposterous because they had no evidence to back it up. They had nothing that somehow the Russians were telling Carter Page, go in the media and deny things and go get a book deal. I'm just flabbergasted by it. If you're outraged by this, what do we now know? The FISA judges were asleep. They shouldn't have allowed this stuff. The FBI was intentionally deceptive. Carter Page's civil rights were irrevocably... uh, Trampled upon, irrefutably trampled upon. The FISA document, even in its final stage, the one that Rod Rosenstein and Andy McCabe signed, was not true. It was garbage. I know the IGs kind of said this in general, but when you look at just how fictional the FBI's writing and presumptions are, you now know why this was such an abuse. Thanks to President Trump, we know these things now because. They're being declassified. Sources are giving me copies of documents or allowing me to come in and see them. But these are important journalism uh, revelations. They really get to the heart of what the FBI did wrong. They didn't have verified facts. They had bogus supposition. They didn't come clean with the FISA court. They hid exculpatory information. They lied about what Carter Page said in the transcripts. These FBI agents... Anyone who had anything to do with this fourth one should be held to full account. The idea that Kevin Kleinsmith, who falsified a document specifically for this FISA, isn't in jail, walked off with a, oh, you poor little boy, probation, is an outrage to the American conscience because we trust the FBI to be honest with the court. And in this document, they were not honest. All right, I'll get off my soapbox. I just wanted to really... Go through that story. If you want to see the story, it's at the top of Just the News right now. It's called FBI's Desperate Pretext to Keep Spying on Carter Page. Colon, he might write a book. Oh, my gosh, what a terrible thing. All right, folks, we're going to do a commercial break. When we come back, the one, the only Ben Carson. Dr. Ben Carson joins us. Yes, the HUD secretary, the presidential candidate, the great neurosurgeon, a very nice man. Joining us right after this commercial break. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, Dr. Ben Carson is joining us. Doctor, good to have you with us.
1: So good to be with you, John. Thank you. Well,
0: it's an honor. And and not only is it an honor, you have some very big news with the creation of the American Cornerstone Foundation. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and what your next endeavor in life is.
1: Well, we, we just launched last week American Cornerstone, as it may sound, cornerstone values and principles that allowed this country to ascend from a bunch of ragtag militiamen to the most powerful nation in the world things like our faith things like liberty things like community things like life foundational pillars and uh, watching those things melt away in our society is not something that i could do or many others who are working with me we can't just idly sit by and let that happen there are common sense principles that need to be applied to the problems that we are facing right now. And uh, if we allow common sense and decency to once again reign supreme in our country, we will see the fruits of that very, very quickly. So we're very optimistic. We've been overwhelmed by the response in just a few days in terms of only donations imagine. and in terms of people signing up for a newsletter. It's spectacular. And God willing, we're going to make a big difference in the direction of our country.
0: Well, you always have made a big difference, whether you were operating on, on people in need or running HUD. You've always been a, a change uh, maker. I, I read this column that you wrote in uh, Real Clear Politics and uh, woke up to it about two days ago, and the the opening really captured me because uh, we we I think we've forgotten how divided we've become. I just want to read a couple words and ask you what motivated you not only to write this, but you know, how do you how are you going to reverse it? So let me just read it first because it really okay. it's very eloquent. Uh, we have painted our fellow Americans as deplorable, stupid, and worse. We are better than this. Words such as compromise, compassion, and civility are twisted, maligned, and tainted as somehow being dirty. That is such a powerful statement. And it really captures where we find ourselves in February of 2021. Uh, how do you think we begin the process of calming everybody down, having a more civil discourse, agreeing to disagree, and getting this country's problems addressed?
1: Well, first of all, we need to recognize who we are as American people We're actually decent people, we're not horrible, deplorable people. The vast majority of people will help somebody who's in need. They will help their neighbor who's having a problem. They're not going to ask them if they're a Republican or a Democrat. Right. And, uh, you know, that's what we need to emphasize. It's okay to have differences of opinion. Everybody's had different life experiences. And I always say, if two people believe the same about everything, one of them isn't necessary. And I think all of us are necessary, but we need to engage in dialogue. That's key. And that's one of the things that the American Cornerstone is going to be emphasizing. Uh, During my time at HUD, we did a lot of roundtables at communities around the country, bringing people from different perspectives to the table to actually determine what the problems are and what the solutions are. Let's talk about the different approaches to it, the pros and cons of those. That's how you come to an agreement when you live in a diverse society and it's like a marriage you know people they love each other they they can't stand to be away from each other right but what about before they get divorced they stop talking the next thing you know their spouse is the devil incarnate that's what happens (laughs) and and that's what's happened to us as a society and we got to start talking to each other we can work this out we are not each other's enemies yeah the us and them mentality
0: inside america has been so bad it has been like a great american divorce and we need to we need to end it. The uh, issues, you 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 led a lot of reform at HUD. The president President Trump had a lot of change across all of America, across all different aspects of policy. How do you extend that legacy? How do you ensure that those changes continue to have momentum and grow even when there's an all-democratic town in in Washington right now?
1: Well, at, at HUD, one of the things that we did was made sure that the reforms that we made were things that everybody could agree with. We had a lot of careers there. We worked closely with them and not made things into partisan issues. So when you're talking about things like the FYI program, foster youth, independence, you know, everybody understands that when somebody turns 18, you can't just throw them out on the street and say you're on your own. But yes, that's what we were doing. So fixing that, I think, is something that really works. Uh, some of the self-sufficiency programs, uh, the Envision Center concept, we're bringing things that already exist under the same roof so that people can actually have access to them and actually can use those things, getting rid of so many of the regulations. And, and this, is, this is what I think a lot of people don't understand, the, the robust nature of our economy wasn't so much from the tax cuts as it was from getting rid of so many burdensome regulations yeah. so that people could start businesses, so that their businesses could thrive, so that they could hire more people and expand. That's a concept that I think some people don't understand. And therefore, they think that nirvana is achieved when you (laughs) regulate everything and you give government, you know, responsibility from cradle to grave. That's not what it is. And that's what we hope to get people to understand. But we have to educate people, not in a pedantic way, but just open discussions and talking about what exists. And this is a, a an incredible country. It's an amazing place. There's no place like it, it there ever was, and we cannot just let it go down the tubes because of people with ideologies that vary much from they're very different from what the founding fathers intended for our country.
0: Do you worry about that. I, you've been a, a champion of smaller government and of liberty and freedom all throughout your life, even. Even in your private life, and and we have this era now where there's a maybe not a full generation, but a large segment of a of our younger generation that thinks bigger governments better, that more intrusion in our lives actually is going to make a better world. How do we? How do you address that? Given you know, the, the very strong beliefs that you've held for so long and successfully yeah. implemented in your career.
1: Well, we first of all have to understand why do so many of the young people think that way, and all you have to. We've had some insight into that with the distal learning. And we've been able to look into some of those classrooms and see the kind of propaganda that's, that's being put forth. Uh, and it starts at a very young age. And you know, when you destroy the real history, then you destroy people's identity. And when you destroy their identity, you destroy the basis of their belief system. And this is what we are finding ourselves uh, in the midst of right now. We've got to change that. One of the things that will help, ironically, is the fact that people can do distal learning now, and they can form groups, and they don't necessarily have to be stuck in a system where you just have people who are interested in propaganda and not in educating people. So we're going to find a way to utilize that obviously to our advantage. You've been talking for some time, and I think uh, the the in a funny way, the pandemic
0: maybe made this moment possible, but just it, there needs to be this culture shock in education, right? There are so many kids that are now in six, seven generations of failed schools. Uh, yeah. Do you think that uh, all the new learning ways that we had to adapt during uh, the pandemic, all the behavior of the teachers unions not wanting to come back and teach the students in some places, uh, that there's a disruption moment in American education upon us?
1: Well, you know, it, it does make you wonder. Uh why people are in the teaching profession, if they're much more concerned about, you know, whether or not they're going to catch the virus, then are they going to educate the kids? And the science has clearly come down on the side of educating the kids, and that the risk of uh, the teachers contracting the disease, particularly from one of the kids, is minuscule. Right. So, you know, Again, you've got to really have people who can discuss these things in a reasonable way and not just have one side you know it's it's sort of like the big lie in, in Nazi Germany. Hitler said, if you just tell a lie but you keep telling it over and over again, pretty yeah. soon people, people will believe, believe it. it, yeah, and that's what's happened. A lot of the teachers are very decent people, yeah, and I, I think if the, if they hear the right information, their hearts will be in the right place.
0: That's a great point. And a lot of the, a lot of the representation of these teachers are really just union leaders and you don't actually hear from the real teachers themselves and uh, they kind of get grouped in with the unions. Uh, yeah. as, as you look out now, uh, having been a doctor for most of your life and, and being a someone who takes the medical profession to heart every day, is our public health has did the coronavirus kind of expose a public health system that was crickety, wasn't ready for this moment? We spent a lot of money. But it seems as though the American people were frustrated by the way it played out, the flip-flopping of advice and yeah. the uh, wear a mask, don't wear a wear 2 masks. oh sure. no, not enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I got confused and I'm, I'm supposed to be covering this stuff. What, what do you think it said about the, uh, the public health uh, structure that we have?
1: Well, remember, it's called the novo coronavirus. That's because it's new. Right. And it, and it acts in a way that's very different from uh, the typical viruses. So expect some changes uh, of mine in terms of, of how it's treated. I think we've learned a lot, but there's no question we weren't ready for such a thing. And uh, I think wherever it came from, and I have my suspicions, uh, right. they, they knew that we wouldn't be ready for it. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't adopt. You know, we need to have an FDA, for instance, that recognizes what an emergency is and doesn't, uh, you know, slow things down with normal bureaucratic processes. You know, there's, there's always a benefit to risk racial thing that you have to do, wise people have to do. And uh, sometimes it means you might move a little faster on something than you normally would. You might take a little higher risk when you recognize that the risk of not being successful is much higher, it's higher right? you know, you just have to be able to do that. You have to be able to juggle that adeptly. That's, that's what a good surgeon is able to do. Uh, recognize, you know, when to operate, when not to operate, how far to go, you know, when to stop. Yeah. All of those things are so important also in figuring out, you know, public health issues.
0: Yeah, they are. And, and like you said, we learn as we're building the plane and when it's a novel virus like this, when it's, it's uh, uh, new to us, the, um, the, the things that you did at HUD, the things that the president did, uh, more largely President Trump, uh, it brought a whole new sort of body politic into the Republican Party. There are people in the Republican Party today that certainly weren't there in 2015. What does the party as a Republican, what does the conservative movement more largely Need to do to not only nurture that current group, but to continue to grow it so that it becomes an electoral majority?
1: Well, I, I think, uh, you know, President Trump brought a lot of light. He shined a lot of light on things that didn't work. And I think that irritated a lot of people on <laughs> both sides sure. of the aisle, quite yep. frankly. Yep. Uh, that's why it's called the swamp. And, uh, you know, that's why they were determined to get rid of him. You know, from the very beginning. Now, admittedly, he didn't necessarily always help himself with some of the things that he said. But really, it's what he did that was much more important than what he says. So, you know, would you rather have somebody who sometimes says things that maybe are a little inflammatory, but does great work? Or somebody who has a flowery tongue, who says all the wonderful things, but then does things that are very destructive, uh to the economy i'm not mentioning any names but you, you can understand <laughs> yeah, i think you might be dividing about. some people right yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so that's this is what we have to think about you know again going back to the american cornerstone what were those founding principles yep that that allowed us to a so heavily. you know it was interesting my wife was looking through some things And she she found a picture of the cornerstone of the Capitol being laid in seventeen ninety three. How cool is that? And and it was on September the eighteenth, which happens to be my birthday. We didn't know that when we named it America. How about that? Isn't that isn't that pretty cool? Ah, it is cool. Wow. But those cornerstone principles; those are the things that made America. And I I guarantee you, you could take any country, and you could apply those kinds of principles, and they would rise. And they would do very well. And they would have people who were willing to work together and people who knew that the efforts that they put forth would not only accrue to them, but would make their communities stronger as well. And they
0: didn't see their fellow American as an enemy. I think that's that's the difference in this last moment, which you so eloquently captured at the beginning of this. If people want to get involved with uh, Cornerstone, how how do they get involved with American Cornerstone Institute? Uh, you got a website, Twitter, Facebook. How can we get people connected?
1: AmericanCornerstone.org. That's easy to remember. And all you have to do is go there and <laughs> enjoy. There's a lot of people there, but we want you to be there too.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an important uh, new initiative. We're going to be covering it here at Just the News all the time. Dr. Carson, I want to thank you for all you've done for your country, for for your patience. Your, I've been inspired by your story for a long time, what you did at HUD, and we wish you well in this new endeavor. It sounds like it's going to be a very impactful thank-
1: one. Thank you. Right back at you. We appreciate what you're doing. You're a patriot. We believe it. Thank you, sir.
0: All right, folks. We're going to come back and wrap things up uh, right after this commercial break. Hey, folks. It's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out plus interest in penalties. You need Tax Network USA and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor, like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's one 800 245 or visit TNUSA.com slash Just News. That's TNUSA.com slash Just News. All right, folks, this wraps up another week's worth of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just News. I hope you enjoyed our guests. I certainly did. Ken Starr, Ted Cruz, um, Mark Morgan, and of course, Ben Carson. What a great group of people to talk with. What Learnings I got from it. I learned a lot of things. I mean, Mark Morgan's instruction of what's going on at the border was amazing. His description, his knowledge, his suggestion that states might have to pass immigration laws—all news. Ken Starr's constitutional analysis of the impeachment trial, which we're all going to be facing next week, we're going to be watching. Uh, really important news, and of course Ben Carson with his take on the uh, divisions in in uh, anger and hatred that's going on in America, and the, a call for Americans to stop fighting with each other. Very powerful, very important. And, of course, I hope we broke you some news this week. Certainly, the new declassified FISA warrant opened up a whole new ball game for us. I'm very excited about that. We'll be back next week with some big guests. We'll be covering the trial. Let's get ready for a big news week in Washington. Until then, may you have a blessed weekend. May God bless you. May God bless this amazing country that is America. Yes, we're all Americans. And we're better than fighting with each other all the time. I think Dr. Carson's words resonate true as we head into this very important weekend. We'll be back next week. Until then, check out JustTheNews.com whenever you need a news fix. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out.